But what would Ra's al Ghul do? Um, <laughs> I know worry he about, do. He wouldn't worry about anybody. Any of it. <laughs> just say, okay, look, this is what we're doing. <laughs> so we buried the lead a little bit here. Right. We're talking what... about the resurrection of Ra's al Ghul. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off there, Justin. Quarantine episode 13, the one where we talk about the resurrection of Ra's al Ghul. Now, the one you've been waiting for. The one everyone has been <laughs> waiting for. This is almost a comedy of errors. You know, before we get into that, we took a, a a week and a half long break to get this thing read by everybody. And the world has just shifted under our feet in that week and a half. So we are returning to Batman in quarantine. Um, with quarantine being one of the the lesser uh, incredibly impactful events that's happening <laughs> in the world right now. But Batman in quarantine, as always, I am here and I am Jeff. I am Justin and I'm glad to be back. Um, it's taken some time to get back to being in Batman-styled quarantine, but I'm glad to be <laughs> back here and talking about this book. As, an, as am I, and I'm uh, Roman Al Ghul. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pleased to be here. Um, so let's get this out of the way first. I, th- I think I've always said Rawls Al Ghul. I think Batman Begins Whoa. came out and they said Raish. Can we right. get like a? Oh yeah. Can we get a like a group? Where is everyone sitting at with that? I also have a disclaimer, but we'll follow it up after we address the name. Okay. <laughs> a book like this, you need a lot of. Disclaimer. Oh yeah, there's a lot going on here. In Batman the Animated Series, he out early on when. Raz al Ghul first shows up. He says Raz because Batman goes Raz when he gets like kicked in the gut by him. But later he calls him Raish in the Bat in Batman the Animated Series, which is maybe our Ur text for you wow. know a reference point. Certainly. Um, so I, I've heard people say that it's Raish. In my mind, just like no, I'm going to throw that out. I don't want to because you know I've been calling him Raz for forever, and to me, it's spelt Raz. But you know and. And I'm interested to hear Roman's thoughts on it as a person who defers to referring to Magneto as Magneto and <laughs> Professor Xavier as Xavier. So where do you fall on the head of the demon? I, well, I'm trying to remember because, yeah, <laughs> like, I think when I, I was read a, it. But... Well, no, because I think when I was a kid, um, I said it being a kid, I didn't know how to pronounce it all. And I think I said it like. I tried to sound it out, so I think I was like, Raz. But then I think because of, of the animated cartoon, I said Raz, and I still say Raz, but yeah, Justin's right. I do remember now in the movie, it's Raish, and I think I tried to do it that way for a while, but it just, it's too much effort. It sounded weird in my head, and so I just yeah. go with Raz. I don't know how it's actually supposed to be. I call him Rash Al Ghul. Rash. <laughs> Rash. It would be interesting to talk to, I, I can't remember who created the character, but it's probably around that Denny O'Neill time. I think it's Denny O'Neill. Yeah, yes, I, I wonder so. how he pronounces it in his head. Um, Justin, about- I'm curious what your, your uh, sub-point of that was. Oh, well, I, this is a separate thing. It is like a bastardized, chopped and screwed version of the, like, Rash al Ghul is like a one-word name for the star that, oh. astrologically speaking, is like the worst star in this. It's like bad luck. It's fucked oh. up. But and yeah. that in, later in this run will show up. I uh, forgot that they yeah, mentioned the constellation at different yeah. times. 
Yeah, isn't it referred to as the demon star or something like that? It's the demon's head, and the if you have head. it in your chart, you're like fucked. It's like, yeah, it's it's the worst star there is in the sky, and that's why I think it's so cool. Which will lead me into my another dis- disclaimer: is how do we all feel about him? Like, I think he's an awesome villain. He is mishandled so often. Yep. I think people don't know how to write eternal living characters because at this point, Roz would be so smart. That like it, he like he would just whoop everyone's ass. So it's you know when you have teenagers beating him up as like a throwaway token villain in every one of their runs as like initiation rites, it kind of boils my blood. And I wanted to like add that in before we go in here. Is like is I kind of walked away like he's pretty menacing and cool in this run, but Shinton as a guy who's lived forever, who's been on every side of every type of morality spectrum there is be a little more menacing than than he is represented in general yeah i (laughs) totally agree and i also just recently read all of batman universe the bendis nick darrington batman story and the um bad guy in that is uh victor savage victor sage Vandal Savage. Savage. There we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Thank you. Good work, everyone. Um, And so, having read that around the same time as Resurrection of Ra's al Ghul, I was thinking exactly to your point. And Vandal Savage is a character I haven't really ever read anything that I've been very interested in him in. But I actually do like Ra's al Ghul quite a bit. And I think that there aren't many good stories with him which is one of the many reasons that going into reading this book, I was excited um, because I read this book many years ago, right at the beginning of like the reading the Grant Morrison stuff, getting back into comics as an adult, a Walden books was going out of business. And so I bought Old Man Logan and this for like 70% off. It's an incredibly flawed piece, but I do think that it is one of not a ton of good depictions of Ra's al Ghul. And maybe this isn't even good, but like we get a kind of large story with Ra's al Ghul where he has motivations and he has an awareness and he is a threat. And I, I feel like in my limited scope, I haven't read that many things where Ra's al Ghul is actually like a threat. Right. Yeah, he... We're, again, like how we're told Batman's smart, but we rarely see him display like actual intuitive abilities. He just like kicks ass out of his way out of things. We're like told that Ra's al Ghul is this big threatening thing. And then, you know, I remember in towards the end of the Nightwing run that I love so much, like they needed to kind of sum up how badass Nightwing is. And then one of the last issues, he like goes to confront Ra's al Ghul and he like whoops his ass. I'm like, I love you, Nightwing, but that's just not real. This guy's lives This guy's forever. eternal. Yeah, and, you know, um, there is a depiction, if you guys haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, that DC animated movie, Under the Red Hood. Oh, yeah. Adaptation of Under the Red Hood. His brief, like, characterization as someone who is kind of a cleansing destruction, like, he prevents the world from falling into too much disorder by adding disorder. So, like, if, like, and that's also, like, Batman Begins, like, when in, uh, culture gets too powerful he'll come and fuck him up mm-hmm. um, he was cool and he's like very briefly in that and i like that conceptualization is he's kind of like a deranged eco-terrorist yeah uh, yeah yeah and that in a weird way like give, makes him kind of smart and also takes him off the board like he's not just like villainous villain that can be beat up whenever you need to he, the, he has his own 
the Batman yeah, the animated series episodes that introduce him are phenomenal. Um, yeah, for sure. Roman, can you yeah, unpack your relationship with him? Um, yeah, that's the uh, the deranged eco terrorist terrorist because you know he's created in the seventies, so eco matters were really mm. big then. And I miss his old characterization where because he's essentially immortal, but the effects of the Lazarus Pit so many times have made him a little off kilter. For sure. Um, he was always so powerful and had such a big network and knowledge that he never, other than when it came down to Batman, everybody else, he'd be like, oh, I'm not going to dirty my hands fighting with you. I'm going to have my various organizations and underlings take care of you except when he came to Batman because, because he felt Batman was his only worthy opponent. So he'd actually like in their first big fight in the desert where they both got their shirts off. Batman mm, still got his cowl on. Um, yeah. That was the only time he got physical fighting anybody, everybody else. He was just like this massive, the head of these all sorts of dark organizations. And that was cool because it really stressed how powerful and influential he was and how dangerous, because once he actually did get down and pull out a sword and start fighting, you knew it, that was really serious shit. Um, and, you know, to the point of, like, every villain thinks they're the hero, hero of their story, I really like Ra's al Ghul, because while he's clearly evil, he also, like, there's times where... It seems like I have a lot of memories where Batman and he will put their differences aside for a moment to fend something else off. And I like a character of morality who believes that they're doing what is right to to the point where they're not so fallibly just evil. And I I think that he represents that pretty well. And I I think that before I reread this recently, um, those were all the thoughts that were kind of going into it. This week, instead of doing four separate issues, we decided to read a, a crossover that came out in the time that Grant Morrison was writing Batman. I, like I said, I read this a long time ago. It felt, when I read it the first time, better because I had not read as many Batman comics. It also felt more integral to the Grant Morrison Batman run, which upon a rereading, not as much. And... More interesting beyond all of that is that uh, the three of us and Django also read it, but because of scheduling, he wasn't able to be on. Um, we had to all share one single paperback version of this because it has not been in print since it first came out. And that makes more and more sense to me now. Um, <laughs> is this your original copy? Like yeah, this is the copy I bought at the Walden Books <laughs> nice. that all of us That's shared in awesome. reds. So for our credits on this, um, what this is, uh, is the resurrection of Ra's al Ghul, which was a mini crossover event that happened within the batman line at that time and it collects issues so we'll be talking about batman annual 26 robin annual 7 batman 670 and 671 robin 168 and 169 nightwing 138 and 139 detective comics 838 and 839 all of those things in a large mishmash and the credits for that this was written by uh grant morrison Paul Dini from the animated series, Damn. Peter Milligan, Fabian Nicieza, Keith Champagne, with pencils by even more people than the writers, David Lopez, Jason Pearson, Tony S. Daniels, Freddie E. Williams II, Don Kramer with Carlos Rodriguez, Ryan Benjamin, and David Baldion with a fleet of inkers. The Resurrection of Ra's al Ghul. Guys, <laughs> thank you so much for reading this. I am sorry 
that it was so much different than I remembered. What were your thoughts on this me, book that we read? Me you gotta too. Get through it. Because you know when you told when you told me we were reading this um, and wanted to see if I wanted to do it, <clears throat> I couldn't remember if I'd ever read it, and I thought that was odd because I was like, God, I thought I read all the Morrison-related Batman stuff. And at, halfway through it, I realized I have read all this before, <laughs> and I'd forgotten it because yeah, it is not good <laughs> for the most part. Um, and I just completely wiped that out of my memory. But yeah, I had read it before. It's very disjointed. Yeah, it is the crown jewel of disjointed <laughs> crossover comic books. It perfectly exemplifies a type of comic book storytelling that isn't really done as much anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it was surprising because I love Grant Morrison. I usually like Peter Milligan. Fabian Nice sees it. I've often liked his stuff. Yeah. Peter of Deadpool. No. Um, I, you know, I used to really like these kinds of crossover comics because you got to see the whole family deal with a, a co- like a single issue spanning through their comics. And there is that. They did succeed in having a <laughs> single antagonist through each comic, but... Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, when I walked away... Hey, hey, there are other things I walked away from, but a thing that I, I guess the biggest gripe I had with it was like, are all event comics this disjointed back then? Like, it really felt like, did you say it's eight total issues? Oh, good question. Um, you keep talking, I'll count them. Oh, X amount of issues that were all separate that were put into a collection because they were like, oh, well, there's like a bad guy here that they talk about. Like, it really felt like the writers weren't communicating that much. Like they were given like, here, Ra's al Ghul's back. And they're like, well, fuck, uh, let's get Peter Milligan in here to do a story. He Eight full like, issues and two annuals. Yeah, it felt really disjointed. And <laughs> yeah. I was just like a Batman nerd, especially back then. I like loved any kind of crossover event because I love all the, all the kids and the Bat family. So, you know, my mind told me they were good no matter what. But I like, I can't imagine if all events like that, the big crossover issue throughout each, like there was Blackest Night. That was good, right? Like, oh, that, I, I have, I am yeah. a now afraid to reread it. Yeah. But I love that book. That, that's, that's, that's got to stand up. I mean, well, it's got one writer. <laughs> right. That's true. But it did cross over through different series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was in Green yeah. Lantern Corps and, and like all those things. Um, and I remember it weaving pretty coherently and the reading list made sense, but it's like, why isn't that just a relic of time if, it, if they were all this poorly done? And there was, I still had fun reading it because nostalgia and... I also, I really had fun reading it, but it, t- to your point, five writers, I really, like, Jeff, pre-working at a comic shop, pre-reading large-scale comic stories and, you know, pre-understanding sort of balance of writing and art, um liked this pretty well now i'm like okay well it's grant morrison and paul dini are the spearheads paul dini who wrote a large part of batman the animated series which is one of my favorite enduring batman stories and then grant morrison but it really does feel like five guys got in a room and like the main editor of batman they're like all right we need to bring raza ghoul back so here are some story beats you go write those ones you go write those ones you get those and we'll draw it someone will draw it you know and like it it really it feels like 
they all had a vague structure of what the story was supposed to be and and then went out and write their, wrote their stuff and it as you would expect doesn't fit perfectly it also isn't really very imperative to grant morrison's batman run as a whole outside of the fact that grant or raza ghoul comes back who is in the story later on not even as an important character as much as talia is right yeah yeah it seemed like the only thing that like the best part of this whole resurrection storyline for me was okay the idea that um Roz wants to use spoilers, people. <laughs> spoilers, everyone. We're going to be spoiling the blockbuster hit Resurrection of Roz Al Ghul. I'm not going to read all the issues that it, that it compiled. Yeah, so this this will ruin the upcoming Netflix series for y'all. Oh, God. <laughs> um, the idea that Roz is going to be resurrected, but he needs a host body and he wants to use Danian because he's young and strong and has been genetically engineered to be a great host body for him. I really like that idea. And I don't know if how much that was even mentioned later on in Morrison's Batman run, but it's a cool idea. It is a cool idea, if not the most novel. Like, it, yeah. it's a good idea for this, but also that's a story beat I've read or seen in other things oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, it's definitely like a, I don't know, a Bond villain type yeah. of motivation. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. We... We did just sort of talk, I talked a little negatively about it. I think we're all, I, let's, can we hit some just like, what are the positive notes of this book? Um, like, for me, the one thing that I walked away from it liking or thinking was charming was sort of what Justin addressed already, which is generally it seems like comic book stories are mostly contained to the writer and series with which they come out nowadays. Um, most recently at the very beginning of the DC rebirth movement, we got like night of the monster men, which was detective comics, uh, written by Tomasi or sorry, uh, James Tinney the fourth, Tom King and the Nightwing writer at the time. And it went between those three still pretty central in scope. I like that we got this out there story that had focal characters at different moments. And it feels like, in a world where we don't really even have a Batman and Robin comic, it was nice to sort of even get like, there's an arc in here that is mostly a Nightwing Robin arc that is kind of them identifying and trying to sort of be there for one another in the emotional space that's created with Damien showing up within Bruce's life. You know, like it's nice to get beats like that in a story that, you know, with the tertiary bat family. That's the big thing I can walk away from as a positive thing is that it felt charming in its flaws for being a type of story that doesn't happen that often anymore. Right. You know, to have someone like Grant Morrison and someone else like Paul Dini, who their styles couldn't be more different, to shoot a <laughs> villain that I'm not even sure why they needed Ra's al Ghul to come back at that point. Like they could have had him come back in a issue because yeah. it, it really has no forbearance on or impact on Grant Morrison's run in a significant way. Or actually, like, that's a great point, any real run. What does like, he come back and then do? Red you know Robin. I, mean? I right. think that out of this, in this, Roz sort of tries to recruit Tim, and Tim says no, but a big part of the Red Robin run that I know you and I both read um, that happens after this is sort of 
it is very Tim and Roz centric, but like that's a red Robin book. It's the first right. of a Robin type of spinoff series. So like, you know, right. how important and, was that? And like, he just looks like normal Roz in that book. Like this new kind of needing a host body zombie Roz doesn't ever really play out. Like that just gets shed. And then he's back to being same old Roz again. Like why have this whole big character change for that? But I did really like that because there hadn't been a big hard reset in a really long time. We have a history of all these character interactions and a history of all these people kind of, you know, it wasn't that odd to have Cassandra Cain show up in a Nightwing book or vice versa or Tim, you know, they were all intermingling and interpenetrating their, each other's books at the time. So I really enjoyed going back to a world that wasn't predicated on the economic model of resets every couple of years yep. and seeing the inhabiting the world that like this is just something that happens every now and then and can happen and you don't need to read it and it was really cool seeing all the characters interact with each other in a way that felt like their voices were internally consistent like we yeah. don't get books like that so much anymore like i totally agree in the pocket universes and you know when you have a hard reset all the time you have a distillation back to the like kind of primal state of a character and you don't get these ongoing like that tim dealing with the struggle of like well gosh now i'm kind of batman's now that damien's here you know i'm batman's weird adopted son that isn't as good and i have to deal with that and what is That's you know a... Kai's relationship like we don't get those long standing conflicts because we don't ever have enough time for that character like tim kind of deals with being evil and we would probably never get that now or like wanting to maybe go bad because we just don't, you know, they had 12 years of just Batman family, you know. That's such a really, really good point that I've never quite linked together in my mind that is, I think, a major shortcoming of comics nowadays and is, is very salient to the, the time with which these were coming out, which is we, we sort of rely on the overarching story to be the thing that hooks readers now. Mm-hmm. And we don't have these long runs of a single writer on a character dealing with an internal moral issue that would take a character that long to move through. We're sort of, you know, forced into six issue arcs. And it's really hard to write a story about someone in a meaningful, relatable way coming to terms with sort of being a surrogate son with a real son returning and what that does to somebody that, that doesn't happen anymore. And I think it is because of the, the eternal resets and the creative switches and things coming out bi-weekly like this. And this, bringing a character to a static state that everyone can immediately understand. Yeah. It's like, well, then they don't get to, like, the death of Tim's dad, and sorry for interrupting, nope. like, had a ripple effect through his whole run. And that was something that took years to write through. You know, Tim was a different yeah. person because he'd lost his dad. And that relationship with Batman couldn't have been set up. And when we don't have arcs that last very long we don't get actual character work. We're constantly having to go back to this eternal, like, oh, Tim is always just this now, or Damien is always a little dick. Arcs that last very long, or writer's stints on a book being allowed to, to last a long time. Roman, I'm curious, you've been reading like, comics regularly longer than both of us. Is that, are you able to put a finger on that? Like, do you notice that difference in comic book storytelling nowadays? Um, like, do you feel like you used to get these longer, more emotional oh, yeah. arcs? And then definitely, do you feel like we're getting something positive 
as a result of the change in the way that the medium is going? Or do you actually feel like holistically it is a loss? I lean toward the holistically it is a loss. Because, uh, yeah, like Justin's example of Tim's dad and everything. Yeah, that took years. And I miss those kind of storylines where, well, heck, like uh, Jean Grey um, eventually stuff. becoming the Dark Phoenix. I mean, that took years of buildup to get there where now they try and smash that into like a Here's your single six paperback. Issue, yeah, it's a couple six issue miniseries and some bookend issues and <laughs> and all that. And and yeah, you miss a lot of little like nuanced story beats in doing this more compact written for the graphic novel collection um style of doing things. Yeah. Well the positive since, of the industry now. Oh, sorry. I was no, please. Say, so you get hot and naughty, nice one issues. You know, single, like when, when a thing gets destroyed and you get a new number one, that rush, the, the thrill of seeing a movie trailer, that kind of similar thing is awesome. But you get the loss of growing with the character. Yeah. You know? yeah. In retrospect, I think I miss the longstanding character arcs. Less immediately gratifying, but... Right you know, gratifying on a large end because sales are the way they are and comics are the way they are. We don't put a lot of faith in this. I currently I'm reading the, I've, I've mentioned it Justin several times, but the J. Michael Straczynski Spider-Man run, which is like 75 issues. And I just can't for the life of me understand why they continued to let it come out. Like the sales can't have been that good. It's not that <laughs> great, but I love the consistency of tone of it. And it, it's nice to kind of get into this thing that is continued slowly moving forward and, and comics aren't, like yeah. that now sales were pretty good on most of his run were they yeah that's yeah good. that's good to know yeah it is a weird book okay <laughs> let's get into this is a weird book this is a weird <laughs> book and you know the the front page of it just credits grant morrison and paul dini but they each only do two issues this is very <laughs> two of ten issues so so a total of four over half of this run are other journeymen just worker you know, taking the count wrestling style writers. So um, what weekly book was Peter Milligan doing at this time? That's what I want. Like, or what, what bat book did Peter Milligan write currently as an author to get to be on this book? Like it's poor really Peter Milligan also, cause he's just always working and no one is like his Hellblazer run was the best thing ever. You know, like it's, it's bizarre in that regard. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember him ever until this ever doing a bat book on any kind of regular base he might have done some stories here and there filling issues but i don't think he was ever a bat writer i straight up think he's an un unsung hero that's kind of because he's weird english guy gets always put in the shadow of warren ellis grant morrison or alan mm -hmm. moore but he's like quirkier and weirder and so it's like when i saw his name on this book i was like hell yeah but it's one issue he doesn't well, really yeah. get to establish anything the start of this is the prelude resurrection shuffle is what it's called. It came out, I believe this is the Batman annual that came out in. This is written by Peter Milligan. I think it's maybe the strongest part of the whole book. Again, pardon us. We have one copy of this. I physically have it. So Roman and Justin will be working off memory, but the first story in this, the art looks a little bit like Eduardo Risso. So like kind of flat, lots of shadows written by Peter Milligan. And it mostly tells the story of Batman hunting down these butterfly scientists who have gone missing and died. And that is overlapping with uh, someone hearing, or basically Damien hearing the, the story and history of Ra's al Ghul as told by his mother. And I think that, that this prelude issue works really well. It's the largest of all the issues. It ends with Batman tracking down that these 
scientists are dead, but they stumbled upon basically an entrance to a Lazarus pit. So he learns where this Lazarus pit that Roz is going to be doing stuff is from. But we also get Talia explaining to Damien why Roz al Ghul is who he is. Sort of the origin of like, you know, his Roz's relationship with his father, how he became a person of power for discovers Lazarus pit. I started reading this paperback. I was like, this is pretty good. All right. Like we're getting it. And the um, conceit of like the scientists noticing that the butterflies lifespans have changed due to their interaction with the Lazarus pit. And they didn't know why, like the ecologists are like, why are these butterflies living? Like, aren't their lifespans expanded? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. That was like a cool way for Batman to like do his detective thing of figuring out why, like that was a cool way to get us hooked into the Lazarus pit and start thinking about eternal life and all that Mm -hmm. shit. Like it started off with, you know, and then we also get to see Russell Gould like, man, you were a weirdo even back then. You don't even need eternity to drive you crazy. (laughs) You're kind of a, yeah. And and this, I lean toward the holistically, it is a loss. Uh, cause, cause yeah, like Justin's example of Tim's dad and everything, yeah, that took years, and I miss those kind of storylines where, well, heck, like uh, Jean Grey um, eventually stuff. becoming the Dark Phoenix. I mean, that took years of buildup to get there, where now they try and smash that into like a Here's your single issue. paperback. Yeah, it's a couple six-issue miniseries and some bookend issues and <laughs> and all that. And, and yeah, you miss a lot of little, like, nuanced story beats in doing this more compact written for the graphic novel collection um, style of doing things. Yeah. Well, the positive of the industry now, oh, sorry. I was no, please. Say, so you get hot and naughty, nice one issues, you know, single, like when, when a thing gets destroyed and you get a new number one, that rush, the, the thrill of seeing a movie trailer, that kind of similar thing is awesome. But you get the loss of growing with the character. Yeah. You know? yeah. In retrospect, I think I miss the long-standing character arcs less immediately gratifying but you know gratifying on a large end because sales are the way they are and comics are the way they are we don't put a lot of faith in this i currently i'm reading the i've mentioned to justin several times but the j michael straczynski spider-man run which is like 75 issues and i just can't for the life of me understand why they continued to let it come out like the sales can't have been that good it's not that (laughs) great i love the consistency of tone of it and it, it's nice to kind of get into this thing that is continues slowly moving forward and and comics aren't like yeah. that now sales were pretty good on most of his run were they yeah that's yeah good. that's good to know yeah it is a weird book okay <laughs> let's get into this is a weird book this is a weird <laughs> book and you know the the front page of it just credits grant morrison and paul dini but they each only do two issues. This is very <laughs> two of ten issues. So so a total of four. Over half of this run are other journeymen, just worker, you know, taking the count wrestling style writers. So um, what weekly book was Peter Milligan doing at this time? That's what I want like or what yeah. what bat book did Peter Milligan write currently as an author to get to be on this book? Like it's Poor really- Peter Milligan also, because he's just always working and no one is like, his Hellblazer run was the best thing ever. You know, like it's it's bizarre in that regard. I don't remember, yeah, I don't remember him ever until this ever doing a Bat book on any kind of regular base. He might have done some stories here and there, filling issues, but I don't think he was ever a Bat writer. I straight up think he's an un- unsung hero that's kind of, because he's weird English guy, gets always put in the shadow of Warren Ellis, Grant Morrison, or Alan mm-hmm. Moore. 
but he's like quirkier and weirder. And so it's like when I saw his name on this book, I was like, hell yeah, but it's one issue. He doesn't well, really yeah. get to establish anything. The start of this is the prelude resurrection shuffle is what it's called. It came out, I believe this is the Batman annual that came out in. This is written by Peter Milligan. I think it's maybe the strongest part of the whole book. Again, pardon us, we have one copy of this. I physically have it. So Roman and Justin will be working off memory. But the first story in this, the art looks a little bit like Eduardo Risso. So like kind of flat, lots of shadows. Written by Peter Milligan. And it mostly tells the story of Batman hunting down these butterfly scientists who have gone missing and died. And that is overlapping with uh, someone hearing, or basically Damien hearing the, the story and history of Ra's al Ghul as told by his mother. And I think that, that this prelude issue works really well. It's the largest of all the issues. It ends with Batman tracking down that these scientists are dead but they stumbled upon basically an entrance to a Lazarus pit so he learns where this Lazarus pit that Roz is going to be doing stuff is from but we also get Talia explaining to Damien why Roz al Ghul is who he is sort of the origin of like you know his Roz's relationship with his father how he became a person of power first discovers Lazarus pit I started reading this paperback. I was like, this is pretty good. All right. Like we're getting it. In the um, conceit of like the scientists noticing that the butterflies lifespans have changed due to their interaction with the Lazarus pit. And they didn't know why, like the ecologists are like, why are these butterflies living? Like, aren't their lifespans expanded? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're totally right. Yeah, that was like a cool way for Batman to like do his detective thing of figuring out why. Like that was a cool way to get us hooked into the Lazarus pit and start thinking about eternal life and all that mm-hmm. shit. Like it started off with, you know, and then yeah. we also get to see Russell Gould like, man, you were a weirdo even back then. You don't even need eternity to drive you crazy. You're kind of a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and this then this was a, this might have been I I don't know, but first time I had ever read like that much depth into like Roz's origin the stuff about his father and then you know the other things there's it was the most detail i'd ever read about his origin yeah and that's i think one of the reasons that like the things that work well about this story are the boring moments that we get with side characters and i think the amount of character that we get out of the context around Roz al ghul so i do think this first issue works pretty well we meet that kind of crazy old guy who is in the trees that Batman stumbles across that like yeah. kind of leads him to the Lazarus pit, but he's been living off of like moonshine that has small amounts of Lazarus traces in it. So he's not aging at all, but he's been around forever, but he is, has dementia. So he doesn't realize it. Like that's the one instance in this story that shows that I think Peter Milligan can keep up with Paul Dini and Grant Morrison, or yeah. they, as a group, they all flushed out the beginning of this story better. And then he just, you know, took the notes and wrote it. But either one of those, made me feel like the first issue of this was actually pretty good. Yeah, I agree. We, we then go into like small pieces of a Robin annual that are just Damien wandering around a town. What the hell was that? I was so confused. <laughs> what the hell was this? Like, it also has to be the first time we got like a full 15 pages of just Damien anywhere, right? Right. And it does... And now I don't have the pages to physically look at. Like, could we justify pulling that? Is there like enough Razal Ghul stuff going on 
or does that like justify being in a trade? Because it was mainly like, oh, I'm Damien and I'm dealing with being in the shadow of all these Robins, so I'm going to fight their goat, you know, like. I think that it is, I think that Raw's set up a scenario where Damien was going to find himself in that graveyard because he blacks out at one point and then wakes up in the graveyard. Oh, right. And it's Raw's identifying, okay, he can fight ghosts off, so his body <laughs> is a valid body for me to be put <laughs> into. But that one, you know, written by Keith Champagne, Never heard of the guy. The art's not super strong. It doesn't make sense why Damien is wandering around the like international district of some town and then is in a graveyard. Yeah, it it is it is not a high point, but I do think it's the first time that we probably spent a full issue with Damien in any comic book. And that's a ballsy move for Grant Morrison to like, all right, well, <laughs> this is sort of his character, this is who he is. Now you go write this character I've created, you know, like that's, that's kind of ballsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. A character that only I understand and so far has hit terribly with the fans. Like, yeah, people, <laughs> people hate this character. <laughs> but, but, you know, we all love seeing a bunch of Robins having a pseudo fight in the graveyard. So, yeah. And so that was a prelude portion. The next issue, which is a first, the first issue written fully by Grant Morrison, which is Batman you know 670 i think it's also art by tony daniel i think it's the first time i had seen tony daniel i think this is his the, the first issue he's had on batman if, unless is that I'm the mistaken. one with the stunning cover of batman on the gargoyle and you can't okay yeah i remember back in the day my brother's best friend who was really into comics and who i knew as a child kind of got me into comics and stayed into comics when my brother got out of it I found him on Xbox Live and called him to talk to him because I was so excited about this issue for that cover alone. I was like, this is going to be great. And he got it and we talked about it. So I love that cover. Um, It's a stunning cover. It's a a stunning cover. Better than all of the interior art. And Tony Daniels has become one of my favorite Batman artists, you know, in the right, with the right writer, with the right inker and stuff. And, and those things are not, here in this issue but it is interesting to note that this is still considered a prelude issue (laughs) so we've gotten a prelude annual a prelude robin annual an issue of batman that's a prelude y'all better have some fireworks for what you're setting us up for and in this one since i've you know got it in front of me we are introduced to batman um i ching is a character that is introduced in this Sensei is a character that is introduced in this, and we see Rawls Al Ghul. Now, we've got a bunch of Western artists and a relatively ethnocentric um, reader base. I myself started to sort of have a difficulty, like I kind of conflated all these characters in my head. Like, what is, I was, I assumed incorrectly that Sensei was working for Rawls Al Ghul through this series. And as we move forward, we learn that that is not actually the case. He's a competing character. Who maybe trained Ra's al Ghul? Maybe. And we learn a connection between the two of them later on. But, oh, that's right. Yeah. But it's this weird, like, I was just reading this book and not fully understanding it because I don't think all the pieces were there to be understood. We also meet the three, like, assassin women in this book that are just, like, classically Grant Morrison 70s villains. Right. You know, I forget their names, but uh, yeah, they're hired by Talia. Yeah, Dragonfly and somebody yep. else. And I had to Google them because classic Grant Morrison, he must have did the outline for all this. 
those are actually three super super minor characters sure from the 60s in batman comics <laughs> yeah of course and, and, and just like sensei sensei and iching they're they're other characters from old dc comics okay good i reading it in the context of knowing that that was in 2007 or 8 thought it was kind of culturally insensitive to like yep. reduce all of martial arts and chinese culture to the I Ching and to someone named teacher yeah Yeah. like sensei like i was like whoa but that makes sense they're from old comics from a time where i never would have thought anybody would bring back I Ching because he's actually from wonder woman in like i don't know the early 60s where she like lost her powers and he became her mentor for some reason and taught her like asian martial arts <laughs> and his role in this is to sort of act as a link between batman who can use him as a resource for information essentially nanda parbat and the hidden city that bruce had been to once before in those 52 issues we talked about an issue or episode yeah. number one and uh you know spoilers that's sort of where the story climaxes but in this we just sort of get uh, a meeting of a lot of competing factors Roz, sensei uh, these assassins hired by Talia, Batman learning where he needs to go, which is Nanda Parbat. And it takes us into officially chapter one, which good call, everybody, was, you know, an issue of Robin, I believe, <laughs> which was what Peter Milligan was writing at the time. Yeah, I like Nanda Parbat as like kind of a mythological landscape. It's very much like the shadow or Doctor Strange, like Batman needs yeah. some mystical place to go learn secrets from. Um, and so I, I kind of like... I, could get behind this like you know this whole run is like playing on like a 60s kung fu movie or something um Mm -hmm. i don't really think it sticks with that very long that issue felt like that um it eventually becomes its own thing uh but i think grant morrison just likes Ching too so you put him in there yeah oh yeah Um, i'm I'm sure and i love the fact that that they tied in and that started in 52, which Morrison was writing, but was one of the writers. But Nanda Parbat is, I like that they tied that in because that's from the old Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Dead Man series. That's where. Wow. Oh, that's right. The, yeah, that's where the spirit, the aspect of God that gives, keeps Boston Brand from dying and makes him into Dead Man, she comes from Nanda Parbat. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Roman, as always, for being the arbiter of continuity and history. Yeah. The the lonely sea shanty sailman on the, the, the front of a ship guiding the course. Um, Our history, there she blows. <laughs> so chapter one is the Peter Milligan written issue uh, of Robin. And what this essentially is, is uh, Damien has escaped the grasp of his mother, vaguely understanding that something bad is happening with Ra's al Ghul. And he goes to seek refuge at the Batcave, where we know Bruce is no longer because he's kind of also independently on the trail of this case of what's going on and is Rawls coming back. And Damien shows up to only be greeted by Tim, once again, echoing the beginning of the Morrison Batman run. And they have a duel and Batman's out there looking for Rawls. And we also see Sensei, who is killing and tracking down seven separate portions of a map that will lead him to nanda parbat so that he might become eternal and then at the end of this we also see that those three kind of hokey older villains are showing up outside of wayne manor as well as a whole enclave of ninjas to take down and hunt down damien 
it's an issue of a comic. I think the big misstep they make here is that they tie Damien to a specific costume, which doesn't stay consistent throughout the run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is one of the charming parts of just this era of comic books. But there's so, especially like in Grant Morrison's run in general, but like in this is like kind of hyperactive. There is so much like locale jumping. Like they're popping back and forth from the Batcave, but all of a sudden they're in this mythical Asian city. But then they're in where I think, you know, Ra's al Ghul's home base is usually conceptualized as like part of the Middle East, right? Like, yep. He's, you know, he, his like claim to fame was in the Islamic empire. So it's like so hard for me to geographically place how these people are getting here, what time span we're spanning over, you know, like, oh, hop, skip and a jump, Damien's in Gotham City. Yeah, I was getting like disoriented from like, okay, what time frame are we dealing with here? I think that's one of the, the, the key shortcomings of this mini series. And, uh, you know, there are good parts of this thing. So we're not just tearing it apart, but I think a main problem that they had is that it, it, it traverses the global locale constantly without a really clear reason for doing so at any given point or who is where, or what the motivation issue. yeah issue to issue these people are in different parts of the world damien's yeah. costume he's got eye things on he's got eye things off he's in the gray black thing from the morrison run he's in a robin outfit at one like all over yeah yeah at least in the old days you know if there was the storyline involved at least one member of the justice league they could throw in something oh well i'll just use my justice league transporter and you know we're in the middle east <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, that, not, so bad. there's not even that effort in this. <laughs> well, I think that this is maybe the first time I read Batman doing a halo jump, a high altitude, low orbit. Like, it doesn't need. Oh, yeah. no, actually, that was earlier in the run. My bad. Um, oh, it was. I those. do love a halo jump. Oh, yeah, you gotta. I have to <laughs> imagine they go through like an illuminated ring at one point, too. We go to. Things... Please, please. Oh, please. it's just one of the things visually that throws me off and. All of these issues, not just this, but in Morrison's main bat, bat run, is I've been surprised how visually it seems like everybody draws Damien to be like, in this, like the same height as Tim. And it throws me off because after, like after Morrison left the book, after he killed Damien, mm-hmm. the... Um, Spoilers. It seemed, Spoilers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> after Whoa. he uh, tried to kill Damien. Um, <laughs> it seems like Damien <laughs> is smaller nowadays than he ever was in these early issues. <laughs> it's true. They just keep... Which one's the kid, Robin? Oh, it's Damien. Let's just... Yeah. There's a, cu- there's a couple... Totally right. Yeah, there's a couple pages in here. I forget who drew it, but I was like, okay, which one is Damien and which one is Tim? You only tell by the costumes. <laughs> Tim's just like very short for being like seventeen, and Damien is very tall <laughs> for being like nine. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, I mean, twelve. And he's written older than nine because he's raised by assassins. So I, I can imagine some writers having difficulty. How do we represent this guy when I have this voice for him, which is older than his physical shape? And it seems like the main identifying factor is at this point, Damien is wearing what is closest to Tim's historical costume and tim is wearing this sort of the black and red full body love outfit it. i i love it too roman favorite roman yeah, it. robin Kotzer. favorite robin costume of all time is that tim one yeah it's it's phenomenal the following issue is a nightwing issue it's nightwing showing up at the gotham estate or sorry wayne estate with uh, tim and damien trying to fend off all of these assassins and then the three 
lady assassins hired by Talia to bring Damien back. And in this, we're sort of introduced to what is one of the three, I think, main components of the story, which Justin identified earlier, which is, you know, Tim being bad or not. Dick is kind of going through a difficult time trying to understand whether he should be restricting Tim to like, no, do this. These are the, this is what a hero would do. This is what a villain would do. And allowing Tim to sort of pursue this idea of like, what well, is a Lazarus pit? I can bring people back from the dead. Maybe I could bring my parents back from the Tim dead. had a rough fucking year, man. Yeah. He beat up like by a little kid. He lost his dad. He lost his, you know, now his circuit dad's affection is being diverted or bifurcated. Yeah. You know, he had a, the head of a dead man with a grenade in its mouth. <laughs> and weaponized. Yeah. His girlfriend, spoiler, had apparently been killed at the time. Oh. And so, you know, he, he's, he's playing with a lot of ideas of, like, what is death in this world? And, you know, there's, we're, we're living in a post-Jason Todd world where Robins can come back, right? Like, it's yeah. So, you know, I feel for Tim. He's processing some serious trauma. You know, maybe he wants to go to the dark side if that means people will stop fucking dying around him yeah. and, you know my awesome cool adoptive dad who's been supportive for me with with me is like a lie apparently now that his kid comes back so i liked seeing you know people because tim has always been such a light and always like oh i'm yeah. for batman i'm i'm the you know he's probably like the most honest kindest robin in my opinion no he's i'm with you and boy and i really like you know one of the high points as well the context of this conversation and these two issues isn't like it doesn't make the most sense in the context of the larger story of resurrection of Ra's al ghul i really like this is one of the things that i think is charming is that we get you know a total of like four issues throughout this thing that are really exploring this sort of big brother role from dick to tim love it and tim's role of am i good or am i bad or what is what is most important to me you that's the thing that i feel like we don't get as much anymore and even while it was sort of stilted a little bit slow and inconsistent, it still allows for a conversation where you can really get into both of their emotional spaces and feel that journey and that character arc happening. Right. It, oh, so as far as like, and you, you said this very well, is like as far as Tim's role in the resurrection of Razal Ghul, this conflict seems a little out of place and clumsily handled, but with the longer view of what Tim has gone through in the past six years of or four or five years of comic book storytelling especially in the past few um it makes a lot of internal consistency for where tim as a person is at and i don't think we would ever get that in the comics and ecosystem now right you know, tim has had x amount of years to deal with all this fucked up shit and it doesn't make sense if we're reading it as like oh this is just one you know a one and done arc but this world wasn't that comic books in that comic book environment wasn't the same thing so that's what I really enjoyed is like looking back and getting to see these characters age and grow in ways that they probably, they're more, they need to be more uh, distilled these days and kind of archetypal and can never change and grow too much. You know, like this Rick Grayson thing will be forgotten very shortly. Right. Not that, and it should be obviously, right. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it, I, I really, despite itself and all its clumsiness, there are these really cool things. I'm like, wow. Tim had all this stuff, and I felt like I got to know these characters again right. in a way that was more real to me than they are now. Yeah, yeah, and it and it it set a um, prelude for what Tim's been going through in the last couple of years in the modern comics and and where he's at now. So that was cool. Yeah, I like 
<laughs> where he wants to be a duck. Like, well, you know, yeah, Drake. Yeah, yeah. But we, you oh, know, since about Drake. Movie, we forgot about the beginning of, sorry, I forgot about the beginning of the Detective Comics Rebirth run where like, you know, Tim is maybe going to college. Mm-hmm. And it's almost reminiscent of like Chris Claremont writing Kitty Pride, you know, mm-hmm. and allowing these characters to exist in the heart and mind of a writer and then do what that person feels like they're doing and not always be this thing. I like Tim's arc here and even, you know, more into the modern day where you can be a Robin who stops being a Robin and doesn't just become Nightwing. You can go and pursue college or something. Your life doesn't have to be dictated by this thing. The following issue is detective comics. This one's written by Paul Dini. The big flaw here in my mind is that this is like Damien is definitely drawn with the costume. That's like gray and white. Uh, mm-hmm. from the beginning of the run and it doesn't take into fact that he's been wearing a robin outfit for the last several issues but this is like you know an important issue and because... he's drawn way bigger in this issue like he's yeah. like an older more mature developed human being than he totally did. like he this is a like a young man in an issue before he's almost a little kid <laughs> and in this one we really get we're bringing everyone together. Tim and uh, Damien are with Roz. Roz's motivations are sp- spelled out. Batman, for no reason, gets this cool bat costume with armor and chain mail on it. What is that? The, the Suit of Sorrows? Is that what it's called? Yeah, and it's got some magical abilities that play into the new Azrael when they bring him back. Oh. More of a crusading mystical character. I really uh, like the costume if I don't necessarily understand exactly why he's wearing it, but <laughs> yeah, for a while bat remember that's a suit that gives Batman a little more endurance and strength and makes him more of a, like it, it kind of makes him semi superhuman, but slowly drives him mad. Okay. Uh, oh, and, wow. Okay. And he, that he wears that somewhere in, in Batman comics at this time. I can't remember. And then Azrael gets it. And then he puts it back on in the final conflict of um, Batman Inc. That's that. He like gets the giant metal mech suit and then he puts that on in his oh. panel. Like, I'm just going to go fuck shit up, guys. It, uh, yeah, I do remember Azrael covers from around this time because he had his own series right now at, at this time and, and he does have the chainmail arms. So. Yeah, so that's the Suit of Sorrows. I don't really know when and how it shows up. But it makes sense to me that maybe Batman's like, oh, I'm dealing with some real eternal motherfuckers. I need to go put on my like crazy superpower, drive me insane suit. We <laughs> deal with it. This is cool. Like this issue, that this Paul Dean. I think that you know the more important issues are probably the Morrison and Deeney ones in terms of the spine of the story, and then the Nightwing, Robin stuff. Those are all tertiary things. But I do really like you know Batman and Talia are working together to try and find a path, and they're in like there's a cool scene of them in a snow mountain and there's she some chemistry there too i i totally agree and i like that that is not undone i like that there's a little you can s- see the attraction between the two of them because they are these apex male and females and batman's yeah. detective skill like he traces heat to find a path through the ice and and all that is very cool uh ultimately we get him showing up yeah he does show up in the room with Roz. so this issue of detective is the one where basically nick nick tim dick uh, as Nightwing, Damien, Batman, Talia, Ross, they're all together in the same room. Nick Grayson. And Nick is there. Um, the following issue is one uh, that is written by exclusively Grant Morrison, Tony Daniel Art. Again, interesting for me to trace the, the trajectory of Tony Daniel's art because I, I love him now, but it's definitely not the high point back then. But this is 
a big old battle that happens on Nanda Parbat, which is apparently where we got to. And we learn here that Sensei is working in opposition to Ra's al Ghul. And that is because, Roman, who is Sensei? Oh, God, man, I'm trying to remember. It was Because in this story, I know he'd been around before, but I'd kind of forgotten about him. And he was like, wasn't he in the story they said originally he was like a second lieutenant to Ra's? Oh, he's Ra's dad. Oh, he's Ra's. That's right. They reveal in this he's Ra's dad. Right. And it's amazing how we can all have read this book and it easily just mental floss, just sort of like yeah. in one year, out the other. Because Yeah, didn't that, I just read it last week and I've already yeah. forgotten? These <laughs> For relationships time. are not explored. The Nightwing and Robin issues really do have the space to explore relationship. The other ones of this do not. Like we are just drinking from a plot fire hose and keep <laughs> just trying to keep up. Well, they're yeah. just trying to, like, just inject relevance into these characters. Like, come on, what can we do with Sensei? Well, let's make him Ross's dad. Well, yeah. what does that matter? But I yeah. guess... Yeah, and I think, I think originally Sensei was just... He was, like, the, 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 the Sensei of the League of Assassins, like, in the 70s. Okay, you know? and, I believe it. And, I get, and then they related it to Ross through the League of Assassins and all that later kind of <laughs> but he wasn't he wasn't an important character ever <laughs> man so are we jeff and i can't visually confirm this are we in the issue where batman is about to confront sensei and what seems like the penultimate issue of this battle is going on yeah we are in one of two issues that are largely battle centric eching is fighting assassins um ross is fighting sensei Sensei almost seemingly kills Roz, who's a zombie at this, because we haven't hit that mark, but apparently previously he had died, but he found some spell to be sort of, oh, somebody, the person whose body he was going to be trapped in exposed himself to such extreme radiation that the body is rotting, so he needs right. to find another body. Right. But yeah, we get this fight between sort of Batman and Roz and assassins and Iching, but Roz and Sensei, and... So clearly Roz. there's like a coup going on. Like there's shifts in power and, and stuff that I totally lost. Like I was like, okay, why are these people fighting each other? And there's we're some, good comic readers. Yeah, there's some funky <laughs> transition stuff, especially that's about to happen in these later issues that like I was pretty nervous about having this, doing this podcast today because I was like, I don't really know what happened at the end of that. Because there's... <laughs> None of us really do, so we're going to talk okay. about it in such broad <laughs> sweeps that it won't really matter. Um, while fighting Sensei, he breaks the fuck out of Batman's arm, like just shatters it in a pretty crazy uh, image. Oh, yeah. And, and then Sensei, like, gets... But in Nanda Parbat, there's essentially a fountain of youth that is like a pure version of the Lazarus Pit. And Batman, in fighting Sensei, gets his shit wrecked. Raw's also shit wrecked. And it looks like both Roz and Batman are on course to die. Then Sensei and Batman fall into these sort of eternal waters. I do not know why it burns Sensei. Yeah, I did not understand that in the slightest. Oh, I do remember that part because thank God. In those, in those, yeah. in that pure, in, the, in that like undiluted or whatever uncontaminated pool. I think I remember reading something in there that you, some dialogue that to go into that one and not be harmed and kind of come out healed or resurrected, you have to be pure of heart, pure. Yeah. Pure of heart basically, or something like that. <laughs> nice. 
we need a way to kill the villain and make yeah. Batman stronger at the same time. Yep. yep. And then we get the craziest, like, full-page, you know, ending splash page of Batman. Very, very, <laughs> for me, not super clear what's going on. He has fallen into this fountain. The sensei has died, and now he's, like, getting up out of the fountain. He was on Roz's side several pages ago, and he's just saying, Roz! Was there a double cross? That's what it, like, why is he all of a sudden, like, now I need to, to go whip this zombie guy's ass. I'm all hyped up on Eternal Fountain of Youth Juice, and there's this <laughs> fleshy guy who can't seem to beat the guy that I just beat is now a threat. Like, I was so confused as to why. He seems pretty pissed to me. He seems yeah. real pissed between yeah. the art and the writing. Yeah, yeah. and I was confused because the, the, this Nanda Parbat pool isn't supposed to make you crazy. And, plus, and even before that, and even before that, I couldn't even, I didn't realize Batman had fallen into the pool. I thought he fell, like, to the side of it on the ground, and Sensei fell in the pool, and then next thing I know, Batman's crawling out of the pool. I was like, oh, I guess Great he, shot, though. I guess he fell, fell in, or he fell on the ground and then rolled in. <laughs> I don't know. It certainly requires some inference on the part of the reader, which isn't always a downside of comics. No. When given if done correctly, it's awesome. if done correctly, it is not done correctly here. Jeff, do you have um, any idea why? Because I think you're probably the best at either staring in, at the pages, <laughs> inferring, um, or like externally looking at the right information outside of the comic. So, do you have any idea with your inference skills why one might be upset at Ra's al Ghul at this point? Yes, because. For some reason and somehow, in the page right before Batman yelling, Roz has taken this opportunity to possess the body of one of the monks. Oh, okay. And and then a fight ensues between so Batman, Batman betrayed. Yeah, and Bat or Roz's means to ultimately find another body to go into have been met, mm. while Batman fights Sensei. Um. Not super clear. Intentions not shown. Who this monk that gets possessed, you know, not super clear outside of the fact that he touches Roz's body. But we see a possession go on there. And I think Batman is like, you dirty rat, you've taken this opportunity to, you know, still possess somebody. Oh, gosh, you're a villain. Why did I team up with you? I'm supposed to be yeah. the intuitive detective, and yet I didn't figure out that you might want to betray me. This Talia al Ghul outfit really does it for me, everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. I can see why someone who is an international terrorist could also be someone you'd fall in love with. We haven't talked about this character of White Ghost at all, who is like this servant to Ra's al Ghul. Oh, that's right. See, I kept on, conf I kept on conflating White Ghost and, and Sensei. I was conflating a lot of characters in this. Yeah, I kept on thinking, yeah, I completely forgot about White, White Ghost. White Ghost is, they gave him like a pseudo history of like, he's always been there helping him out. I think he's his son, actually, is what we yeah. learned in the final issue in a non-ceremonious way. Um, okay, so Sensei is Roz's dad, White Ghost is Roz's son, Talia is Roz's daughter. Damien is Talia's daughter, her son. And Talia is always looking good. And, and Roz takes the body of this monk, it seems, in the worst. We get two more issues of the Dick Damien, sorry, the Dick Tim conversation of Roz is like, Tim, you should take this water and revive your parents. And 
you know, Dick is like, I don't want to tell him not to do that. I need to let him make his own choice. And ultimately Tim makes the right choice. Um, I liked that part. Like Dick was like, you know, the best thing I can do here is trust him and be a big brother ultimately. But the end of that issue, we get this page of like, I don't know if we've talked about this page of like Roz in a surrogate body holding up Damien with the weird spirit head of a monk behind. Like none of it is explained. Like there's just some of the most convoluted visual storytelling I've ever seen get put past a DC comic book. But ultimately we get taken to the final chapter, which is written by Paul Dini. Good that they had one of the two anchors, the Diener, um, write it up. Uh, White ghost sacrifices himself. That's the body that um, Ra's al Ghul takes. In that Everyone case. is battled and put to bed. They're kicked out of Nandapar Bat. Batman, like Ra's al Ghul survives but escapes. Talia escapes. And it wraps up in an airplane scene that I thought was a different airplane scene than the one that it was. And I'm excited to talk <laughs> just about that in just a second. But let's handle the resurrection or the resolution of this story. What? Was it supposed <laughs> to be significant that the white ghost is now Ra's al Ghul because that doesn't play out in anything ever. Like we never see a fallout, a, a consequence of that. Like by the next time we see Ra's al Ghul, he's just Ra's al Ghul. He might as well just be, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I think that it's basically a MacGuffin of like, well, it was going to either be Tim or Damien. It's neither of those. So we'll just choose his actual biological son, which obviously, right. But, he's just this sort of shadow character the whole time who, you know, the unappreciated son of, I gave everything to you and now I'm giving my life to you and you still don't appreciate me. So I guess if anything, it sort of serves to highlight the callousness of Ra's al Ghul, but it really doesn't, you don't feel a large loss for the the sadness of this character of white ghost. or who he showed up like five issues ago. Like we have no time to be like, Oh man, your life sucks, dude. Yeah. (laughs) If we're going to give one issue to like Damien wrangling ghost Robins, why can't we give one issue to white ghost and show like how shitty his life has been and why he is in the position he's in, you know? Yeah. In service to his father ever underappreciated. Right. And his father's whole like weird kind of semi-sexual obsession with the Wayne family and their whole bloodline. My grandson is one of them. Yeah. He he just, (laughs) he loves them. He loves Batman. Do you remember probably a year after this came out because I read it in issues and I read this story in paperback, but not long after this came out in issues an issue happened. And I believe the, the summer summarizing moment of it at the end of it is all of them in an airplane. And Bruce says that he is officially adopting all of them. Do you remember that story? It's like them in an airplane and Bruce is basically like, you're no longer my award. I'm adopting you. And like, I think, I think he, at some moment, it might actually be in like a Tony Daniels issue of the Batman run or an annual or something, but I feel like they're all flying home from something. And Bruce like sort of officially says that like, I have adopted Tim. I know he officially adopted Tim right before this run. And that's why the Damien thing is so fucked up is because he like officially made Tim the first member of the Wayne family. And Tim was going by Tim Wayne for a while. Okay. And there's some, famous crying scene where Batman's holding Tim in, I think, the same room from year one where he rings the bell, the bell room. Um, they're, like, yeah. holding each other. Justin, and- you are 
eternally someone I admire for a hundred thousand different reasons. But yes, Batman 654, which is the culminating part of the Batman face the face storyline, right? right. Morrison or, or James Robinson rather right before all this um, right. that happens on, on an airplane. So yes, you are exactly right. And then this follows up on that, but it was similar enough that I, I kept sort of being excited for the emotional beats. I flipped through it. I saw them all on an airplane at the end and I was like, they're going to become a family. Oh, nope just one page of them having hot cocoa on an airplane because apparently it's Christmas Eve, which comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, they like Gotham in, in winter in Gotham. Let's make it Christmas Eve at the end of all of this. The final three panels are, it's a very nice sentiment, Master Bruce from Alfred, and most appropriate for the season. The season, Alfred? It's Christmas, sir. Don't tell me you had forgotten. Well, better late than never, I suppose, to family family sir and dick turns around with a mug of hot cocoa from driving an airplane to cheers with all of them <laughs> i hope we didn't wrap up the second third of that or the final third of that too quickly but the whole thing is just a total mishmash right i think that's a general sort of summary of the beats well all the beats that you said are explained in like a really mushy three-way fight between sensei batman and raz al ghul like there's two issues worth of just kind of a convoluted fight that ends in that fountain scene yeah and that at that time i felt like i got hit over hit in the head by something i was like what the hell just happened um yeah so i think you did a good job thanks yeah yeah i think that was a good general because there's so much weird little goings on i'm at one point i mean for example one point the sensei i think or yeah has a team the seven deadly men of death or something uh, yeah 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 which are I mostly remember that yeah which are mostly mainly minor characters from dc history plus a couple i think morrison created um as an aside one of them the hook he's the guy that killed boston brand oh it's weird how much of this is yeah it back is back to that dead man run it is even though they never mentioned dead man <laughs> yeah gets me squirky <laughs> gets me a little bit squirky too yeah let's squirt I, thanks roman <laughs> it's bizarre that in 10 total issues almost four in their entirety deal with tim and dick and Dick's story arc, or sorry, Tim's story arc of being an orphan and sort of finding an identity maybe with Roz or maybe just instill Batman's tutelage. Four of 10 issues are largely devoted to that. And again, I like that as someone who's reading storylines that I could have been reading for years. You know, if I had started reading that Robin run 50 issues earlier and it was just like, I think that would make a lot of sense. So bizarre to be collected as four of the 10 issues in this relatively important event. And I think that is just one of the many reasons that this volume has not been recollected or republished or put back in print in almost 10 years. Like when was this printed? Yeah, it was my, probably my favorite part of that whole run is that whole Tim Dick conflict, just cause I'm a Robin fan. But ultimately, it's, like, inconsequential. It doesn't really need to be inside of a Ra's al Ghul story. Like, it was an afterthought. And to me, shines the brightest because everything else was just kind of this weird clusterfuck of a combat scene. You know, I think the emotional pulse comes from that spot. But, gosh, that's, that storyline didn't really need to be considered part of a Ra's al Ghul storyline. No, it didn't. It would have been more appropriate in the main, in the main title. Right. Um, 
but yeah, of this of this crossover, that and the history stuff they reveal about Roz, those are the two coolest things in this right crossover. In the beginning. I felt <laughs> it does harken back to a time of comic books to me where the single story that you're reading doesn't have to be this end all be all thing. Mm-hmm. And it harkens back to a time where like just kind of reading comics and following the path of a character was the draw. And I feel like nowadays more of the draw is placed on, are you telling a new innovative, big impactful story? And I think that part of what makes comics special is just they're always coming out. There will always be one. And therefore you can tell these very long, slow moving stories with people. So while I think, it's not an important part of the Morrison Batman run and it is not well executed. I still think there is a charming element to this crossover that makes me sort of feel a sense of fondness for a time of comics that feels kind of gone. For sure. I told Jeff that it was a much needed waste of time because that is the best description, dude. I forgot (laughs) to mention that, but it's, it's so good. Like while it was, you know, not super well written, the art was there was a lot more to be desired for from the art. Um, it like reminded me of certain nostalgias I have of that era in comics. And like, it allowed me to like read a comic book that isn't so much, or it didn't feel so predicated on the ripple effect it will have that will cascade into another event or, you know, and while it kind of went too far in that direction where it ultimately felt like it was pointless, Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't also feel like it needed to be the most important thing that ever happened. Like we're kind of seeing that in comics right now is like, you know, let's give a writer a corner of the universe and make that the focal Venom, Silver Surfer, you know, the Donny Kate stuff is now everyone's toolbox. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's so much writing for this ripple effect and it felt nice to be like, okay, let's just make the characters the central importance of it rather than does this garner more, comics 10 years or you know a year from now can we turn this into another cross-spanning event and i'm sure that's what how well did. is this paperback gonna sell for the next eight years you know right you know this came out this paperback came out in 2008 and it right. has never been reprinted so we know how well this comic book sells <laughs> yeah i was wondering when you brought that over or Django brought it over or brought it over to me um i looked at it and i said i don't remember seeing this on our shelves is this how come i don't remember this <laughs> yeah I remember that specific paperback. I don't know if I've owned it, but I I really like Batman having the sword in that mm. costume on the front. It recalls of the original sword fight with Razzle. Yeah. So I thought some super cool shit was going down in that book. Man, that original sword fight is that's that's one of the top moments in comics history. I'm yeah, so grateful the- that you guys read this book. Thanks for doing this. I thought it was more integral and better when I thought that it would be fun to have one of our full weeks be a four-person discussion of this thing instead of reading all 10 issues independently. And, uh, well, it was different than I thought. So thanks for being on board, boys. I kind of knew that I didn't like it back then. And so going into it with the expectation that it's not good, I've kind of found a light in it. Like, you know, abandon all hope ye who enter here. <laughs> ye accidentally find hope. Um, you know, I found gems despite itself. But what I want now is the redemption of Razal Ghul, where we actually see him be a worthwhile villain and not someone who can be bested by, you know, anybody. Justin, you should write that. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, gosh. You should, you should. Because, yeah, he's, 
Raj should be like, I've always thought of him as uh, like DC's, kind of like DC's equivalent of Doctor Doom, except yeah, with more knowledge. <laughs> but that same is, regal. Yeah. yeah. The demon's head. Like yeah. the, the head of it. He is the front line of all the evil shit. Like he, he could be, and he's super old and smart and is mystical as fuck. Like he could be a serious force to be reckoned with. But, you yeah. know, when you need like Nightwing to look badass because you forgot why you're reading this Nightwing book is, you know, you have one issue where he flies over to kick Razzle ass for no reason. And Razzle like, damn, blasted by a 21-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> and he sounds like a living snake. Uh, well, did anybody have any, like, you know, thoughts they wanted to iron down about this whole 10-issue thing that our listeners are going to happily have to make their entire week of Batman in quarantine around? So hopefully you break <laughs> this into four or five parts. <laughs> It's just about all I gotta say is from this point on, it's about to pop off into straight up like bat acid. Yeah, we're about to start taking tabs of, you know, bat acid. I tried to come I, up with another bat pun drug. I I, I can't wait in the next day or two to record back in the Batman portion of the Batman run after this. I I hope the three of us can gather around to discuss exactly how Batman and Grant Morrison write the correct the course after this. Right. We're one bad day away from shit getting real dark for our for our good friend Bruce Wade. <laughs> yeah. Roman, did this did this feel to me, it feels very out of place because I'm way more versed in the last 15 years of comics than I am in the last 50 years of comics. Did this feel like comics of old to you? Did it, or did it feel just sort of like a poorly executed miniseries? Because um, I put it in my head sort of as just like, I think there was a, an era where comics, a larger portion of comics were sort of like this, but now it sort of exists in a vacuum. I'm curious your thoughts there. It it feels like a poorly executed miniseries. Good, good. <laughs> when, when did it come out? It was... 2007. Oh, 2007. See, that, and that is... If I had to guess, having just read it and didn't know where Arrow was from, I would have thought it would have been a, a 90s poorly executed series. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's, it's valuable in that it added some things maybe to Roz's mythos. I don't know if those things have ever been followed up on it all or mentioned again but but to justin's quote i just think there is something very valuable about wasting your time sometimes like a much needed waste of time like didn't change the conversation but i spent time with characters and allowed them to mature around me and i wouldn't say i'm glad that forever my connection with particularly dick and tim has these moments in it but i would say the framing device of it pretty weak i guess that's sort of how i would summarize this whole thing is more in the future i hope to have more books that have room to breathe with moral issues for characters as humans right i i you know from a writing standpoint i don't think it's very good but it came from a world where we weren't you know, the industry wasn't predicated around a writer's name as much as it was around a character. And I forgot that I used to read comics that way. Like, I, it didn't matter if the story was good or bad. Like, that wasn't even a thing in my, like, mental loca- vocabulary if the story was well-written or not. I know I talk about that a lot now. But back in the day, that never came up. I just read for the characters. And there and were I, better stories and there were worse stories. But they weren't I think that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so, 
going back there, I got to remember what it was like to read comics as just a hardcore capital F fan and not a, as a guy that like knows things about comics, you know, with heavy quotes. Like, and, and the Jeff who knows about comics is the guy who's like, ooh, this isn't very good. But I can't forget that there was a time in my life where I was just starting to read Grant Morrison stuff and a bookstore was closing. And everything was on sale. And I was like, sweet, a Batman book and a Wolverine book. And I walked away from it liking it just because I was so far on the outside of these characters that it felt special to be there with them. And it is a place of privilege to sort of be like, well, this isn't one of the great ones. Like now we we spend so much time with comics and reading the good ones that we can say you're not one of them. And the market is predicated on like, you know, this writer is hot and good and you like it, you know. One of but the there's a lot of people who are just like Justin Young reading Chuck Dixon stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. good, too. One of the worst things you can do for yourself is to dis- discover you have a good taste because then you start <laughs> putting everything on a scale and it sucks. That's, um, I wish I could unlearn that. That is a very good point to go out on. So I'm not going to say anything further unless either one of you has something to say. I, I don't think so. I mean, another plus is... Anytime you get to spend time in a mystical city up in the, the mountains of Europe <laughs> I'm trying somewhere, to get that's us cool. There. I'm trying to get us there, guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if a, any of us find the path, let's, let's make sure the, other, the others come. Um, all right. Well, I love you guys. Thank you so you much too. for being here. Awesome. Batman in Quarantine. Uh, we will be back next week, everyone, on Monday with a full week of just regular Batman issues. Thanks for having this little vacation with us, letting us take a little break from the daily grind and go into this bizarre thing. Um, As always, I am Jeff. I'm Ganupton. Oh, sorry. (laughs) What'd you say? Ganupton, my name. Oh, 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 yes. (laughs) Um, Cool. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. (laughs) Thank you.